Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com. My guest this week is Mario Gabrielli, the founder of The Generalist, a publication that tracks a company's journey from idea to IPO. During this 45-minute conversation, we talked about how he's built the business, what he's learned running a fledgling community, and how he has protected his business from legal issues. I hope you enjoy our discussion. You've spent most of your career working in finance, but recently decided to focus all your time on building The Generalist. How did you find your way to building a media company, and what exactly is The Generalist? Well, um, you know, it's it's funny. I, I, I'm not necessarily sure I would say I spent most of my career in finance, and the part of finance that I uh, did work in was probably the least rigorous and quantitative version of finance possible. It was, you know, super duper early stage uh, venture investing, pre-seed and seed. You know, you maybe do a little bit of back of the envelope modeling to to take a look at, you know, market sizing stuff and, and maybe just get a, a very rough outline of how a company might operate. But for the most part, I was looking at businesses that um, hadn't earned any money yet, maybe didn't even have a product. Um, so, uh, f- I always feel a little bit of an imposter in the finance world, uh, particularly among folks that, you know, maybe went and worked at a bank after college or, you know, were at a growth stage fund or, or PE firm. Um, the, the generalist really came about by happenstance, I would say. Um, as soon as I left school, I started, uh, taking night school classes at NYU in fiction writing. I'd always really loved writing and, you know, assumed it would be a part of my career to some extent, but probably, you know, after retiring from a more traditional job. Um, but starting to take those classes, I, you know, realized that I really wanted to get more serious about writing. Um, and so starting in 2012, I began working on a novel. Um, and I would get up in the mornings and, you know, an hour or so before work, uh, go to a, a local coffee shop and just work on on this book. Um, and I did that for about eight and a, a bit years, and uh, I'm still still working on it today. Um, but I, I mentioned that because you know really the generalist came about because I love to write. And as I started to spend more of my time in the tech sector, um, it seemed logical that I should take some of that passion and and bring it into, the working world where I spent, you know, the majority of my day. Um, and so I started it as a side hobby, something I would do on Saturdays. Um, and honestly, kind of quickly, it started to feel like something that was really important to me. Um, I would, you know, I was very happy to give up essentially all of my weekends, um, to this newsletter that was being read by, you know, 10 people, 20 people, 40 people, maybe 100 people. Um, and I was finding that it was really occupying a lot of my brain space and interest. Um, and that I was meeting amazing, interesting people through it, learning through it, and, you know, more pragmatically sourcing companies through it uh, for for my day job. Um, 
And so, you know, when it became time to think about my next step at the, at the company, at the firm I was at, um, and also just sort of take a look at what I really wanted to do with my, my life, um, the generalist was really increasingly at the forefront of my mind at a time when it suddenly felt viable to make a living as a solo writer. Um, and so, you know, I think it was also very lucky that I started this at the time that I did. Um, and I'll, I'll take a breath there. I realize I haven't told you a ton about what the generalist is, but happy to, to, to dig into that. Yeah. Why don't you dig into that? Tell us a little bit more about what it is and then we'll go from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, the, the way I really think about it is the generalist is a tech publication covering the sector from idea to IPO. That's sort of the, the framing that I have settled on. Um, and the reason that I use that framing is because it's a series of newsletters um, that sort of cover different aspects of the tech ecosystem. There's one newsletter, which is quite literally startup ideas curated from VC partners and founders. There's my weekly briefing, which is sort of a deep dive into a sector or trend that I think is particularly notable and noteworthy. Um, and then there's the S1 Club, which is a collaborative look at uh, a company heading to IPO. And so it really does sort of run that range. Um, and then beyond the newsletter, uh, there's a, a community, which I'm, I'm grateful to have you in, um, of, of folks that are interested in really improving their building muscle, their investing muscle, and also are just looking to um, think about the future more intelligently with others. Um, and so there's, you know, a lot of different m sort of other models through which I think of the generalist um, and sort of mechanisms that I am increasingly trying to prioritize in, in building it out. But uh, that's sort of the, the high level version. How do you, you know, you mentioned the audience a little bit, but how do you define that audience in more detail? Because with a title like The Generalist, I can't imagine it's very niche. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, I, I, I'm always sort of struck by, or, or I often wonder whether it was a, a good idea to call it The Generalist or a really bad one. Um, initially, it was supposed to be a riff on the idea of generalist VC funds. Funds will often, you know, instead of noting a sector that they're interested in, they'll just say sort of like, oh, we're generalists. Um, and it's sort of a, a bit of a cop-out and also sort of funny in my opinion. And so it was initially sort of a nod to that, but now I don't think people necessarily associate it with that. Um, instead, I think it has come to define a sort of person um, that, you know, is, is also sort of the audience for someone like David Epstein, uh, with his book range, like this sort of, uh, high IQ, high EQ person who is keen to improve better themselves is fundamentally very curious and very thoughtful, um, and doesn't necessarily feel the need to pigeonhole or, um, define themselves in narrow terms, uh, in turn, it more pragmatically, I think the audience ends up being a lot of venture investors, uh, a lot of, startup builders and founders, um, and then sort of secondarily folks in traditional finance. Um, but I think the, the shared ethos is that these people tend to be like very voracious readers and very wide readers. Um, and, and that's sort of like the, 
the more generalist ethos that I think comes through some of the time. So since taking this on as more of a full-time project, how has growth been uh, both on the just overall newsletter size, but then obviously you also have the paid component? Yeah, so the the newsletter side, I went, pay, I went um, full-time in August of 2020. And at that time, I had 5,500 subscribers, which to me was like, whoa, this is wild. Um, and, um, it's Excel, it definitely accelerated significantly just, you know, having the privilege of getting to spend more time on it, um, putting more pieces out, uh, devoting more to community efforts and things like that as well. So now it's just a, a little bit under 30,000, um, which I I've been, you know, very pleased with, I would say, um, the paid element is still much earlier. Um, and so it's hard to know, but I would say it's off to a really good start. I turned on uh, paid membership on January 24th. So about you know six, six plus weeks ago. Um, and in the first month I exceeded my best ever base salary um, in, in terms of bookings. Um, and, you know, it, it's continued to, I think, do well over the sort of following two weeks, but I'm still very cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, I don't really have churn data at this point in a meaningful way. Um, I don't really have great growth figures in terms of month over month growth in a, in a meaningful way. And so I think, uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, um, over the next sort of four five, six months, let's say. And as you're thinking about growing the audience, what sort of tactics are you finding work best for what you're building? Fundamentally, I think the the place where I am able to differentiate myself a little bit and um, that I hope to continue to differentiate myself is the collaborative n- nature of a lot of the the writing and and pieces that I do. So uh, these sort of startup ideas newsletter is you know fundamentally composed of other people's ideas. Um, and that has a really nice viral effect because the five ideas that I feature every week have five authors and those five authors feel incentivized and excited to share the piece. Um, and a similar dynamic exists with the S1 club where I'll pull together, you know, sometimes as many as 10 people or so, uh, VC partners, CEOs, operators, writers to dissect a company. Um, and in addition to it, greatly improving the product, I think, because you you know just have a ton more expertise and knowledge, you know, poured into, into writing this thing. You also have that, that sort of same viral mechanism. Um, and so I'm really leaning into that. I think as I go forward, even my weekly briefings are increasingly collaborative, um, bringing in people from the community, bringing in other readers, bringing in other writers. Um, and that's, the most uh, structurally interesting and reliable way that I found of of growing. So it's interesting that you will effectively create a piece of content with multiple participants, and in in some respect, because they are writing, they now will share it to their audience. Do you is that process an informal one where they know that they're contributing content and that you're monetizing it, or is there a formal? process where you have them agree that the content belongs to the generalist and it's very formal? 
it's it's super casual and, and honestly it's because i don't monetize the content from other people um so the s1 club is well i, I guess i do monetize it through sponsorships at this point um but i don't keep that stuff behind the paywall it's all in front of the paywall um i haven't felt the need or or had any pushback in terms of folks you know saying hey let's put put a contract in place and i think that's really just because the benefit to the contributors is that like it's fundamentally fun for them to to sit down and get to meet with a bunch of other really clever really sharp folks um, and think through this company and so putting together the sort of guardrails and structure uh, around that i think is is valuable um and is something that folks are are excited to be a part of, um, and then there's also the sort of added benefit of uh, some degree of exposure for the folks that find that valuable too, uh, to have their name attached to to I hope a very um, high quality piece of research and writing that gets shared with you know tens of thousands of folks. Um, I think is a way to position themselves as as an expert on a subject that you know they they might want to brand themselves around or associate themselves with. I want to spend a little bit more time with the content because you broke it down. You do briefings, IPO reports, uh, pieces on S1 filings. You've got startup ideas. You interviews, VCs and founders. As you think about your content strategy, do various pieces fit anywhere in some sort of a funnel? Or you know, what is the logic behind all of these disparate types of content that you're creating? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. The truth is that Really, it arose more from experimentation, um, and I've really just like stuck with the formats that I think have turned out to be winners. So there were a bunch of other formats um, that I tried along the way. Mo- most notably, there was something I call uh, I tried out called In Flight, which basically worked with super duper early startup founders to share a private beta, a test flight of their app. Um, and it was sort of a fun way for folks to like get an inside look at what was going to be publicly available in the next few months. Ultimately, I just felt like, you know, it wasn't differentiated enough. Uh, it didn't, uh, feel as, uh, strong a piece of content as some of the other things. Maybe I'll bring it back in a, in a slightly new form in the future, but the pieces that I have now feel like, uh, I was able to reach product market fit with them in a, in a real way. Um, the one place I would say that I think that's less true is my interviews. Um, I think people always seem to really enjoy them and, you know, they get a good response, but in terms of sort of value over replacement, uh, or differentiation over other interviews, I think I still have work to do to, to really make them stand out. Um, but the existing pieces feel now like they fit a narrative. They fit this narrative of idea to IPO. They fit a specific type of audience, uh, which is, this person who is probably working in big tech or working in uh, private market investing, who is interested in what's coming up as well as what is finally exiting. Um, and it feels like there's some nice undergirding mechanisms that you know, can hopefully reliably and, and organically provide, provide growth. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit and talk about the back end of the business because Obviously, you would love nothing more than just to spend all your time creating, but you've got to power the thing. What technology is used to power the generalist? 
That's a great uh, and interesting question, and it's quite an apt one because I've been over the past uh, few weeks really digging into the rail, so to speak, and trying to think through, like, how do I streamline this? Just because, as I'm sure you have plenty of people tell you, creator burnout and uh, stuff like that is is very real. Um, And I'm lucky that I don't feel burned out at all right now, but have an eye towards the fact that uh, I've definitely never worked harder than this. Um, I've never had more fun than this, but I've definitely never worked harder. Um, And so I'm starting to think through how I can build more automation. Um, The way it is at the moment, really, sends are conducted with ConvertKit uh, or ConvertKit, um, which I think is the best possible email tool for uh, folks in in my position. Uh, The sort of site that has the CMS is built through Webflow, uh, which has worked out well and I think has allowed me to... um, present articles in a slightly more interesting way. Um, Pico is the system I use to manage membership, which I know you know you use as well, and I've had a good experience with so far. Uh, and I use Zapier effectively to knit those different pieces together. I would say that it's not perfect at the moment. Definitely took a lot to get it up and running. Um, and there are still you know little bugs or sort of edge cases that have cropped up um, even you know, last week, for example. So there's some ironing out to do there. Um, And then I host the community on Circle, which is an asynchronous community platform. Um, And then there's a sort of a long tail of other tools that I use, um, you know, for for writing, for editing, for uh, images and stuff like that that I'm I'm happy to get into. Um, But those are sort of, I would say, the, the most foundational pieces. Let's talk about that community because I recently joined and it's it's interesting. And I also recently launched my own uh, far less elegant experience with a Slack channel. Um, why, you know, what does the community offer the overall subscription and why did you decide to launch it? Yeah, I think a few different reasons. Um, I think it offers the overall subscription the chance to take the conversation that is proposed in a piece of writing and uh, take it the next step. Ultimately, I'm keen as often as possible to blur the lines between creator and audience. I want people that are in the community to contribute to the writing. Uh, I want people that are writing, um, you know, something for the S1 club to join the community. And I really want to sort of like create this uh, free form space. And so the community really allows me to do that, I would say. And um, the other thing is, I think it was you know, fairly organic. Um, folks have been asking for a really long time to, to have a community. I had a few telegram groups that were um, popular and uh, I think impactful for folks and enjoyable. Um, and so sort of doing something a little bit more formal that I think has the potential to have accumulating value uh, felt like a good next step. Um, and it also, I think, is going to prove powerful for actually improving the product. Um, so I've you know, just dabbled in this, and it's really early days in the community still, but um, there have been a few topics where I've floated them in the community where I've said like, Hey, I'm going to write about this. Um, you know, if anyone has any thoughts, would love to hear from you. And that's led to folks highlighting resources that I might not have seen, 
sharing stories from their from their own work that I might not have known about and generally sort of enriching the end product in a way that I couldn't have done unless you know I had something that facilitated this type of conversation. And why did you decide to use Circle, which really, I mean, I, I think is a great software versus something simpler like a Facebook group or a Discord or Slack or something like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested in, in hearing what you think about it. Um, the thesis at the moment is that uh, asynchronicity fits better with the audience I have and also allows the community to truly become and accumulating benefit um, that will sort of yeah become more powerful over time. And so, you know, to, to unpack those a little bit, um, asynchronicity I think is great, uh, particularly at scale, um, and particularly for folks that are really busy. Um, and I think the people that read the Generalist, obviously, it's a very wide ranging group, um, but a lot of the folks that applied to join the community are fairly senior, uh, managing directors, CEOs, CIOs, um, VPs of different functions. And I think a lot of those folks might not, you know, have the bandwidth or the desire to be in a more lively uh, and potentially noisy channel that is synchronous. Um, and then the second piece is that, you know, because Circle allows you to center discussions around a topic, I think you end up with some really interesting actual artifacts. So, you know, something I've been trying out for this next S1 club is to create a channel for the Coinbase IPO. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting if folks start to share questions there, if they share resources there, and it becomes sort of a place of record for a discussion around Coinbase. That to me could be really interesting and valuable for someone who joins a year from now and might be interested in that company. And so in a sort of roundabout way, uh, it almost becomes a crowdsourced version um, of what someone like Patrick O'Shaughnessy is building with Colossus, right? You can have like these quite in-depth discussions about a company that then becomes sort of a, a miniature threaded wiki for someone who's interested in in learning more about Shopify or Stripe or something along those lines, um, and so Circle felt like the, the best way to achieve that. But I do think you know the the downside is that in the early days you have to do a ton more work to get things going, um, and I think it fundamentally feels less active. You know, ten active people on Slack feels very very different than ten active people on Circle. I want to spend a little bit more time about with that, you know, obviously it's only, you know, a, a few months old, if that even, but what have you learned from running the, the generalist community that you wish you had known before you started? I guess I, I think, um, I've learned that, you know, as with everything, it probably takes more effort than you expect. Um, and so, just like building that into my weekly calendar a little bit more to sort of do the work to introduce people and get conversations started, especially in these early days, I think um, is great and is something I wish I'd known uh, earlier on. I think the other piece is to be a little bit patient. Um, I think it's really scary launching a community in a way that even writing a piece of content is not scary just because 
you know, it's, it's much more dialogue than broadcast. And so <laughs> when you when you know you are entering into a dialogue and you hear crickets on the other end, you feel much more self-conscious than if you enter a broadcast and, you know, don't hear anything because you don't expect it. Um, and so I think being patient and recognizing that, like, this is something that hopefully gets more valuable and better day by day over a period of months and years is another piece. Um and then I think, you know, this is probably very obvious, but I should have realized earlier on just how valuable like a personal curated touch is. Um, one of the things I've been doing is taking community members and writing what I hope are thoughtful introductions between two of them. Um, and I've gotten really good feedback from folks about that, just saying like, hey, this led to an awesome conversation or you know, it's really clear that you put a lot of effort into trying to understand who I am and, you know, who I might be interested in meeting, like, thank you for that. Um, And so doing those unscalable things, I think is, is really valuable and yeah, worthwhile um, for a community. So let's dig into the business now, or the actual, I guess, revenue generation. Uh, You recently launched the premium subscription, and that has really three tiers. Um, a monthly and yearly, which is, I guess you could say, just one of the tiers, uh, and then a believer tier that gives people access to five years of the generalist. Can you talk about the breakdown of these tiers? Yeah. Um, and so I actually don't remember exactly what portion is in each one. The sort of observation I would say I have is that a large amount of folks opted for believer, um, which has had a very useful uh, effect on, you know, r- revenue, obviously, and my ability to sort of directly reinvest in the business early. Um, the fundamental benefits that you get in premium versus believer are not super different. Um, the real difference is that believer, as you mentioned, is is for five years, um, and there are some additional uh, things that you know are coming up in terms of private rooms and channels and, and, you know, events and stuff like that for those folks. Um, but that was definitely a lesson in, you know, not capping your upside too much when it comes to, um, monetizing an audience that, you know, may be really willing and excited to sort of help you take this next step. Let's spend a little bit more time about that believer tier, because on one hand, it's great upfront revenue. On the other hand, you're basically giving nearly two years free. Do you do you think it's a good strategy to think that far in the future with your with your members, or you know, do you have any concerns that in years two, three, and four and five, I suppose your revenue will not look as compelling? Yeah, I think you know it's very it's very much true that in year four and five, you know, folks are essentially. Um, getting the generalist quote unquote for free. Uh, my, my feeling is that like three year retention for someone would be awesome. Um, if that's the way things shake out. And I don't think this will be something I do forever with in all likelihood, the believer tier will become something a little different. Um, probably closer to like 500 bucks a year, um, for a slightly more premium, um, experience. And so, I think there, you know, there's a portion of folks that maybe I could have uh, gotten an extra year or two of revenue out of them, so to speak. Um, but I think, by and large, I'm happy to to lock in a 
you know, a good LTV on those folks, um, especially early on when, when I can use that funding to like really build out some interesting pieces of the business. And then for the free tier, you run advertising in there through sponsorships. What sort of products, what sort of sponsorship products do you currently offer and what has been the reception from both the reader and advertisers? Yeah. So I've only run ads with two companies so far. Uh, one is future fitness and the other is Tegas. Um, they were both kind of, I mean, as close as a no brainer as I would say is possible. Like the future fitness company, like I've used that app for two years. I interviewed their CEO, um, in the very early days of the generalist. Cause I thought it was really interesting what he was building. It's something that I, you know, very much believe in. And so when I sort of decided I wanted to, to try that out, that, that felt really, um, natural. And then Tegas offers sort of transcripts of, um, from experts. Um, so it has sort of deep transcripts on Coupang, for example, which is a company that we covered in the S1 club. And so by partnering with them, not only did, you know, bring in revenue, obviously, but it also, uh, allowed me to bring in all of this, you know, additional private information into the analysis. So as often as I can, I think like I would really love it to be companies that I, I know intimately um, and even better that they actually improve the product. Um, all of that said, I think I'm going to be pulling back on, on accepting new sponsors and, and reaching out to new sponsors for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it's a really compelling revenue opportunity, but frankly, the membership has done well. Um, and I kind of don't want to have two customers right now. It feels like as people are coming in as members paying for it, I really want to just double down in making that as incredible an experience as possible before sort of layering in this additional revenue stream. Um, so, you know, th with folks that I already work with, you know, I, I think that, you know, maybe makes sense, but, um, for the most part, I think I'm going to try and maintain focus on the subscription and membership otherwise. It's a big business to try to run by yourself. You know, obviously you have the subscription yeah. component, the community, you're creating all this content. Like you said, you know, sponsors are like another customer right now. It's only you. Do you plan on adding any people to the team? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's sort of the reason to just pause sponsorships right now. It's like, I don't think I'm running the, the best process there. And um, until I can really get that into a place where I feel like I'm doing it well, um, you know, it feels better to focus. I have the same sort of feeling, honestly, with uh, corporate subscriptions. I've talked to some folks that have done that really well. And, um, you know, in some respect, a lot of time, people will just sort of tell you like, look, you're leaving a ton of money on the table if you don't, you know, spin this up because you don't have to make your content better. You don't have to you know, do anything different. You really just have to run sort of an outbound sales process. But again, I think just like bandwidth is, is uh, often the constraint for a creator business. And I, I definitely feel that here. Um, the, the truth is that I don't think I'll bring on anyone full-time in the short to medium term. I am bringing on a bunch of, really smart folks to help build out sort of different aspects of this. So um, I worked with some, some talented designers and developers on the website 
Uh, I'm still working with them on a few new features that I'm excited to, to roll out. Um, I'm going to work with some uh, freelance researchers on some of the uh, new content projects that I'm working on and, and maybe on some existing pieces too. Um, and then I'm working with sort of a, you know, I don't know exactly how to describe what they do, but it's someone who's worked with a ton of different creator businesses in streamlining their backend systems and, you know, just setting you up for um, scale in a way that, you know, hopefully pays off down the line and as well as, you know, freeing up a bit of time now. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the, the way that I'm thinking of, of scaling headcount, so to speak, is just like more with these discrete tasks that I hope um, can can buy me a little bit of time and and put me in a slightly better position going forward. So obviously you spend most of your time thinking about the things that have to get done right now. That is the burden of being a solo operator. But as you know, when you have a little bit of free time and you're thinking about the future, where do you see the generalist going over the coming years? Man, this is always so fun to get to talk about. Um, so I'm glad for the opportunity to dream with you a little bit. Uh, the sort of high level goal is to build the most thoughtful tech community, tech and investing community on the planet. Um, and, you know, the, the word choices there are, I think, intentional. Uh, one, thoughtful is sort of the, the term that I really hope to build as much of the generalist ethos around as possible. I think there's a lot of tech coverage that is fundamentally not that thoughtful, either because it's you know more focused on fundraising or um, it's negative in, in a way that feels unnuanced. Um, my hope is to, to really center the coverage and, and the writing and the research we do around uh, well-considered ideas that remain compelling. Um, and then community, because you know I think content and the writing is really, as much as anything, a vehicle for other forms of connection. Um, I think it has you know definitely plenty of value in and of itself. But I think once you start to build an audience, uh, that's when you can really do sort of this next level of things together. Um, and so that probably starts out as conversation, but then morphs into any manner of different things, including um, investing, which is a, a very natural extension, syndicates or, or a fund could both make sense at some point. Um, sort of micro PE transactions, which as I'm sure you've seen is like a very popular topic in, in the community. So buying a small company together and sort of operating it as a decentralized group, um, courses, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a ton of different ways to take it, um, but sort of at the foundation of it is the idea that I hope there's just this really engaged, interesting, intelligent, and thoughtful group of people who um, have bought into a community ethos. So one of the downsides of being a solo creator, independent operator is you don't have the protections that come from working at a media company. <laughs> and specifically what I'm talking about is protection from litigation. You went through a situation where a company tried to sue you uh, yes. for 
uh, well, I guess I'll let you talk about it a little bit more, but can you talk about what you learned about that whole process and how you've put your business in a place to protect from that happening again? Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely was a strange adventure. I mean, I think it happened, if I'm remembering the dates correctly, in October. So it was just a couple months after I'd sort of gone full time on this. Um, and basically, I, I wrote a piece on compounders, which are high value growth companies that that really grow at a fairly consistent rate over an extended period of time. So, you know, the canonical example is Netflix. You know, if you look at Netflix's last decade or so, the stock and the company has just continued to grow 20 plus percent year after year. Um, and I worked on that piece with a collaborator. Um, and um, yeah, we, you know, we wrote an article just sort of unpacking this subject a little bit. It was intended to be a series unpacking the subject. And um, for whatever reason, and I, you know, I still have not really gotten to the bottom of what precisely uh, the opposing party was concerned about. But for whatever reason, a large hedge fund called Durable Capital uh, felt that this topic of compounders infringed on their intellectual property in some respect, uh, you know, represented form of plagiarism in some respect, um, and threatened to sue me. Um, at that point, you know, I, I was earning zero, zero dollars in revenue and, you know, was just sort of writing a, a newsletter to, I think it was 10,000 folks at that point, uh, why a $6 billion hedge fund felt this was a worthwhile threat and that I was a worthy adversary still escapes me. Um, but basically they demanded that I take the piece down, um, after, you know, plenty of strange shenanigans in between, uh, and, and a bunch of head fakes. Um, but after consulting a media lawyer, um, who, um, Brad Wolverton at the hustle was kind enough to connect me to. So I'm always insanely grateful to those folks. Um, you know, this lawyer looked at all of the back and forth, looked at our position, saw what we had written, saw the various public sources that talk about this and said, like, look, you know, you can you, you never know what's going to happen, probably. But, um, you know, I think he, if you want to, I think you're very uh, reasonable to hold your ground on this. And so we put the piece back up um, and I shared the story of what had had gone on and was pretty astounded to find the level of support that, um, yeah, the story got from, from Twitter and particularly sort of like the fin twit world of folks saying, you know, it is blatantly absurd that any fund might try and claim ownership over terms like compounder or good to great or any number of other things that this fund sort of seemed to suggest they had, uh, proprietary, uh, coverage of. So, you know, the, the things that I would say I have learned from that are, you know, one, the power of an audience is, is not to be underestimated. Um, and even when a fight seems absurdly asymmetric, um, you know, one person having a $6 billion fund with a, you know, good legal team and a solo newsletter writer with, you know, zero bucks in revenue, audience can really make up the difference. Um, and then I think the second piece is to, to really be prepared in a way that, you know, I wasn't at that time, which is 
you know, have in your head lined up, like all the places where you've gathered this information from just like even going back through my history to pull all of that stuff was, was a little bit tricky. So, um, you know, knowing, knowing that, um, and then also having media insurance, um, and things like that. So, um, you know, there's both sort of the, the pragmatic case as well as the more communal protection that I think you can get when you earn the trust of readers and others uh, that, you know, you're doing good, honest work that uh, isn't trying to steal from anyone. It's trying to explain a, a very normal topic. I want to close with the same two questions I ask every operator that comes on the show. First, what is a mistake that you've made in your career and what did you learn from it? Hmm. And it's a great question. Um, I, so I, I think the biggest mistake I made in my career was in not playing to my strengths off the bat. Um, I have always felt that my greatest strength is my ability to write. It's, you know, the thing that in school always was, you know, get me most sort of praise. It's the thing I enjoy doing the most. It's the thing that I know is work for other people, but play for me. Um, and I really didn't put myself in a world in where, where that like was a huge asset. Um, and so I, I think I'm incredibly lucky and it's rather fortuitous that like I've sort of stumbled there, uh, finally after the fact, because, you know, working at a startup, unless it's a media startup, I mean, it's occasionally valuable to be able to write, but by and large is like at best a sort of pleasant, nice to have. It doesn't really like give you a much of a competitive edge, I would say. Um, in venture investing, increasingly, I think it's becoming valuable, but at the time that I entered the field, I do, I do not think that, you know, I ever really thought like, oh, man, I'm really going to crush it because I'm a good writer. Um, and so I think the mistake I made there very simply was just like, cool, I have this place where I think I have um, ability. Why am I not positioning myself to capitalize from it? And why am I trying to fight with all of these lesser weapons, let's say? Um, and so I wish I had earlier on just recognized that like, this is the place that, you know, maybe makes you different, like build around that. And then my second question is, for others that are thinking about launching their own publications, what is some advice you would give them? Uh, I mean, I imagine it's a lot of the advice that um, folks have heard. So I'm, you know, I'm sorry not to be perhaps more original, but um, I think focusing on consistency is the best thing you can possibly do, which is, you know, try and reach a consistently high level of quality. It doesn't, I think, have to be unbelievably good every time. And, you know, I, I think you don't want to get in your own way uh, in terms of, you know, if things are 90% of the way there, just ship it uh, because it's velocity, I think, is is more important than sort of capturing that last 10%. Um, and then, you know, as I've alluded to there, consistency in terms of timing is is I think pivotal um, and getting on to a cadence that is fairly regular. So writing at least every week, if you're taking it seriously uh, and trying to edge up from there from, you know, maybe weekly to biweekly, um, 
maybe there's a point where, you know, there's sort of some diminishing returns, but um, I think it's very hard to get momentum if you publish, for example, once a month. Some people manage it, um, and, uh, you know, that, that's amazing. Uh, but I think if you're, you're really trying to build a large audience, you do need sort of a, a number of shots on goal. Um, the second thing that I think is important is to lean into collaboration. Um, you see it with plenty of other creators where collabs are really how they drive audience growth. That's particularly true of YouTube, but also true of things like, you know, music. Um, I think writing is no different. I think you can do a lot of similar style collabs with the written word. Um, I think being experimental is really valuable earlier on, early on. I think I was lucky in that I had seen a ton of startups um, through my time in VC. And so as a result, I kind of came to this from the vantage of building a product rather than you know, just writing. Um, and I think that sort of gave me the desire to iterate and try different formats, different, uh, different content types, different, uh, you know, designs, just even from, from big to little things, I think, you know, trying to find those optimizations is, is really valuable. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think those are sort of the major ones. Um, and I think you have to just really love writing because otherwise I think you, uh, will quickly find that it is, you know, a job like anything else. Um, so I think, yeah, you have to have to really enjoy that part. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.